If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to Hebrews 13 as we look at these first six verses together this evening. Now, when we come to this passage tonight, and when I began looking at it, it appears initially to be fairly unrelated and disconnected commands that are given here about brotherly love, about marriage, and about money. But I think to get the full impact of what is being said here, we need to take a step back, consider where these verses are set, and see how they relate to the previous amazing passage in chapter 12. And let me just to pick out two things about that passage. First of all, we have Mount Zion. Chapter 12 there, and verse 22, we read, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of, right, of the righteous, made perfect. Early in the chapter, he speaks of Sinai, and how awesome that place was, where God came with thunder and lightning, and they weren't allowed to touch that mountain. But now Zion is something even more glorious. Yes, it's a place of grace, but it's a place that is even more awesome. And the only ones who could come to Zion are those who are made perfect through Christ. And as believers, this Zion, which is heaven, is the city that we have come to be part of, not in the future. It's something that we are part of now, this heavenly city. And that relates to what we're going to look at in a moment or two. The second thing we see is acceptable worship, down to chapter 12 and verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Being part of this city of Zion, being part of this kingdom that Christ brings in, has to move us to be people of worship. But it is worship of this God who is this consuming fire. This God who we have to worship and live before with reverence and with awe. So the teaching we now come to in chapter 13 about brotherly love, marriage, and money comes in this context of a life of worship, a life of worship of this awesome God, this God who's a consuming fire, who we come before with reverence and with awe. And this is not just about what we do in the service of worship, but it's about a whole life of worship that we live, being aware that we live this life before the gaze of this awesome God who is this consuming fire. So let's look at what we get to in chapter 13 of how we are to live a life of worship. What is to be part of our worship to the Lord? First of all, we have brotherly love in verses 1 to 3. Verse 1 says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. So let brotherly love continue, it says. Uh, the Greek word for brotherly love, you maybe know, is Philadelphia. And this reminds us that we are part of a family, a part of brothers and sisters, a part of a people who are the family of God, the family of Christ. And we should show that we're part of the family of God by our love for each other. 
Now, there are two ways this brotherly love is to be worked out. First of all, in verse 2, with hospitality. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Entertain strangers literally means to love strangers. That's a literal translation of what we're called to do here. It means we are to welcome outsiders. This has to apply to us individually as believers, opening up our homes, inviting people for meals, meeting the needs of people, meeting people for coffee and showing fellowship that way. We're to welcome strangers, which means we're to reach outside of our comfort zone and go beyond our normal circle of family and friends. We're to welcome people who we're unfamiliar with, but people who need our encouragement and support. As churches today, we need to be welcoming. This is particularly important as the gap between church and community seems to grow. I hope we realize that it is very challenging for people to come into a church building when they haven't done so for many years. We, we don't realize how daunting this is. I remember some of the folk who came into the Brook Cafe in the early years. They were shaking in that hallway. This was a terrifying place to come in. Not because I was there, I hope, but if people don't, you don't realize how frightening it is. It's not something they're used to. So we need to work at being the most welcoming we can be. Of course, that's important that the people on the, the door are very warm and welcoming as people come in. But it's also so true of every person who's seated. When people come in, you make an effort. Now, we're reserved. Most of us are by nature. We're not always maybe outward going. But we have to make that effort. Just before I started as minister in Brookside, that summer we were on holiday up in Port Rush, and we decided we would come down to this area to go to a couple of churches. And on the morning, we went to a Presbyterian church. I'm not going to say which one it was, but I can tell you it was so unfriendly. The only people that spoke to us was the, the elder on the door who we knew, and also the, the minister and his family spoke to us. Now, Johanna at that stage was about a month old. And normally, uh, carrying a baby in a wee seat is a normal good way to break into conversation. But we went into this Presbyterian church, and out again. And apart from those people we mentioned, nobody spoke to us. We went that night, out of curiosity, to green pastures, because we knew that, indeed, it was a, an issue in the area at the time. We went to green pastures, and before we were seated, I think we were welcomed by about five times. It maybe was slightly overawing, but it was better than the other way. We need to be churches that are warm and welcome. And this is something every believer... Now, we're having fun at the moment here in Brookside, where people are sitting down beside people they haven't had a conversation with before. I know some people are welcoming people as strangers who have been coming to the church for years. Uh, don't be put off with that. Don't be afraid. Talk to the people who are beside. This is something that's so important. I think the wee cup of tea is very helpful. I don't think people understand the role and the importance of a cup of tea at a church service. It's an opportunity to draw alongside people who are maybe new, draw alongside our brothers and sisters who are maybe struggling. 
this is something people need to commit themselves to. I know that on every occasion you don't necessarily are able to wait, but you need to make a point of doing it at least some of the time. To commit yourself, particularly elders and committee men, to take, commit yourselves to taking that time to talk to people, new people, people in the church. In the summer times, we normally holiday in Scotland and in England, and it's lovely going around different churches there. And I have to say, the churches where we find we feel felt most welcome, and the vast majority of them, this is true of, it's been over the week cup of tea or coffee, and people have come up to us. People have watched out and see we're strangers or better ourselves, and they come up to us. And you know, you go back to those churches. We can't expect to be churches that grow and develop if people aren't willing to put themselves out to engage with people who come in, to welcome them. And you know, you just have to begin with, are you visiting here today? Are you from the area? You just start anyway. Even start the old Northern Ireland way of talking about the weather. Do anything, but engage with people. It's so important. But you notice what we're told here? We're told that in welcoming strangers, some people have welcomed angels unaware. When we are hospitable, when we are welcoming, there's great blessing that will come to us. In the Old Testament, Abraham and Manoah, you know who Manoah is? I'm not going to tell you who he is. Look up the book of Judges and work it out for yourself. Abraham and Manoah, they welcomed angels unaware. And you know, great blessing comes when we, instead of coming and just thinking and caught up in ourselves and what I want and what I need, come to church with the attitude of giving, of being warm, of welcoming brotherly love. So brotherly love shows itself in hospitality. It also shows itself, secondly, in prisoners in verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. The way this is phrased about prisoners, about how we're to care for them as if we were there with them, it means we're not to be negligent. We're not to have an attitude of out of sight, out of mind. We're to care for these people as if their need was right before our eyes. Now, this obviously has clear applications in praying for the persecuted church and helping organizations like Open Doors, Release, and Barnabas Trust in the work that they do. To fulfill this commandment, we have to prayerfully and practically support those who are imprisoned and suffering for their faith. Another area which I mentioned in my prayers, which I think is an application from this, is the whole area of human trafficking. I was listening to, I think it was Friday, there was a man on the radio, I think it was an organization uh, for Hope for Justice, I think it was, which works with human trafficking in fighting against it. This man, a man called Aaron Robinson, he's from London, and for something like 70 days now, he's got up every morning at three in the morning and has run a marathon with his two border collies before he then goes to work to start work at nine o'clock. He's done it now for over 70 days. And he says, it's not easy. It takes him about five hours to run the distance of a marathon. He says, it's not easy. But he says, I think of what these people are going through that we're seeking to support. And the figure that he shared, about 135,000 at least slaves in the United Kingdom 
is shocking. And that will mean, listen, folks, there's some of these people in the Balaminiri, and some of these people who are slaves will be our brothers and sisters in Christ. We can't be ignorant to this. We need to support organizations like the International Justice Mission and who work against it. But notice how this verse ends there in verse 3. It says, since you also are in the body. I think that can be taken either way. You're in the body in the sense of your physical body. You know what it means to suffer. You need to care for people who suffer. Or I think more likely it's speaking about the body of Christ. These are people that are part of the body of Christ who are suffering. And you need to be concerned about them as well. You know, in these things, we just can't ignore them. It can't be a take it or leave it attitude. Remember, we live and make these decisions as part of a life of worship. We take decisions about obeying this, these commands under the gaze of the God who we can only approach with reverence and awe, who is a consuming fire. He doesn't expect us to take his word ever lightly. Brotherly love. And then secondly, we come to marriage love in verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. When Hebrews means honoring marriage, it of course means honoring marriage as defined by God in Genesis 2. As marriage between one man and one woman. And anything else that calls itself a marriage which does not fit that pattern is not marriage in the sight of God. That's the only marriage we recognize within our Presbyterian church. I'm not sure if you're aware, but that statement is now made at every marriage service in a Presbyterian church. The only marriage we recognize is between one man and a woman. It's the only marriage ordained by God. Any sexual relationships outside of a marriage between one man and one woman are sinful and will receive God's judgment. Look what it says there at the end of verse 4. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. But wonderfully, for the repentant, there is grace, there is forgiveness to be found. Last Sunday night at the you Fellowship here, I was speaking about Jesus' contact with three immoral, sinful women. The woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, and the sinful woman who anointed Jesus' feet. And the amazing thing which I noticed in, that, in each of those stories is how Jesus took risk. He went out of his way to engage with those sinful women. Such is his love, such is his grace. Such was his longing for them to receive salvation. And you know, this idea that the church is against sexually immoral people is wrong. We have the answer for these people. We have the answer for every sinner, which we have found ourselves as sinners. The answer is the grace in Jesus Christ. But part of our calling has to be in honoring marriage. It has to include resisting the things that dishonor marriage today, such as the corruption of gay marriage. John MacArthur Jr., 
different times is invited onto the, the Larry King show. And when he was asked, well, what's the problem with gay marriage? He says, Look, it's, they're doing nobody any harm. What's the problem? The response that he made is, it is attacking the family unit. The family has been established by God for the blessing of society. And anything that attacks the family unit as defined by God will really harm society. We need to be humble. We need to be gracious. But we need to say that marriage and family is to be defined by God alone. But one of the best ways, for those of us who are married, one of the best ways we can promote and honor marriage is by us seeking for our marriages to be filled with the grace of Jesus Christ, to be an example to the world out there. For those of us who are married, we should seek at working at our marriages. Martin Luther, which is in some senses a surprising thing, when he got married to his Katie, he described his marriage in this way as the nearest thing to heaven on earth. I don't know if she would have described it that way, but he certainly did. And uh, for him, marriage was something truly wonderful. You know, we who are married should always desire for our marriages to grow and to go deeper in Christ. Work at your marriage. Plead for God's grace to go into your marriage so that your, married, your marriage will be the greatest witness to the world around you. Marriage is to be honoured because it's a picture. It's that holy picture of that relationship between Christ and the church. And with the church, there should never be a negative attitude to marriage. John Calvin said, jokes about marriage come from the devil's kitchen. Uh, sometimes I'm tempted to begin the speeches at weddings with that uh, quote. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, as Christians, we need to be careful. Christian men should not be slagging off their wives in public. Christian women should not be slagging off their husbands in public. We should be loyal. We should, part of our witness for the Savior is honoring marriage, which is so dear to the Lord. So brotherly love, marriage love, and then thirdly, undistracted love in verses 5 to 6. In verse 5 we read, Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? We have been studying the Sermon on the Mount at our midweeks and in our small groups over this winter time, And there's undoubtedly a parallel here with what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount about not being able to serve two masters, God and money. We're not to worry about material things. Instead, as believers, we're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We're to seek the gospel and the spread of the gospel and the reign of the gospel in our own lives. And these other things will be added to us as well. And what Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, I think, is not primarily about avoiding worry. Sometimes people think that's the main focus of that passage. I think what Jesus is wanting to avoid above anything else is distraction from what we should be focusing on. And I think the same is here. 
money and possessions, material needs, can really distract people from the spiritual. John, in his first letter, speaks of how you cannot love God and the world. The material things of this world, the possessions of this world, if they're not held in a right place in our lives and not held with a right perspective, can have a terrible, deadening impact on our spiritual well-being. Many of us have seen young, bright Christians very involved in the work of the gospel in the life of their church, and then they get married... They have a home to pay the bills for. They have a family to look after. And sadly, these material needs take over. They lose their spiritual zeal and they drift. And sadly, that can happen at many different ages as well. And this danger of material things taking over, it's not a new problem. The prophet Haggai spoke of how the people who returned to Judah and Jerusalem from captivity, they were too comfortable in their fine houses. And they had no urgency in repairing the house of the Lord. The church today across the province is in decline. And often there's little zeal among Christians to reach out for the lost. There's little passion today to seek God's revival. Why is that the case? I think one of the big problems is we have become too comfortable. Our material needs have crushed so much of the spiritual life out of us. Sadly, I fear too many are settling for what is at the very best, a poor second best form of Christianity. But what can we learn from these verses here to help us? Look at verse five again. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you know where that quote comes from? I will never leave you nor forsake you. It was the words of the Lord to Joshua when after Moses' death, he was taken over the leadership of the people of Israel and was taken on the great responsibility of leading them into the promised land. Joshua was going to go on this amazing adventure. There would be the victory at Jericho. There would be the crossing of the Jordan River. There would be the conquest of the promised land. It wouldn't be easy. There would be difficult days ahead, but he would have wonderful victories. And what would keep him going was this promise of God that he would be with him, that he would give him success, that he would be, help him wherever he would go. And I think the promise that Jesus gives before he goes up to heaven, when he gives the great commission to his disciples and to go and make disciples of all nations, it's very similar. He says, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Joshua was to lead his people into the promised land of Cain. The disciples were to lead people into the promised land of heaven. The work of the kingdom that they were called to do was an exciting adventure, the most exciting work of all, because Christ would be with them, Christ would sustain them, and they would know a fellowship which would give them a joy they'd never known before. And when people give up on that primary focus of the work of the gospel, of the work of the kingdom, and are distracted by money, distracted by material possessions and needs, they are missing out on so much. D. 
Do you tonight have a passion for the work of the kingdom? Do you tonight have a burden to reach people with the gospel? Are you engaged in it? Are you praying for it? Have you a passion for it? Or are you like the Laodiceans, at best lukewarm? Come before the Lord. Acknowledge where we have fallen. And pray for him to restore unto us the joy of our salvation. I hope and say this to our young people. Never lose sight that the most thrilling life you can have is a life dedicated to the work of the gospel, the work of the kingdom. Notice there, verse 6. So we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? We sang that verse earlier. It's Psalm 118, verse 6. It comes after that repeated phrase, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. It is that great love. It's responding to that great love. It's, it's that which motivated Pastor Yusuf in Iran to keep going on because what he has endured is nothing compared to what Christ has endured out of love for him. It's focusing on that love. It's focusing on that sacrifice of Christ, that steadfast love that has endured forever. That is to encourage us. We can focus not primarily on our homes, our money, and so forth, but we can focus primarily on the work of the kingdom. And we have a God who deserves this. And we have a God who will look after us. So as we finish and recap, what is the acceptable worship we are to give as people of Zion, as people of the kingdom? Brotherly love, caring for each other, marriage love, letting our marriages be a witness to those around us. And undistracted love, not letting the things of the world squeeze the spiritual life out of us but to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your wonderful truth. And Father, we realize that so often our biggest challenge is, is not those parts of the Bible which are hard to understand, but our biggest challenge are those parts of the Bible like this which are so clear to us. And Father, we just pray that you would give us that sense of God in our lives, that sense of the God who is a holy, consuming fire, but also this God of wonderful grace and love. That that sense of God would so move us on in brotherly love, in love in our marriages, and will prevent us being distracted by a love of the things of the world. Father, we live in a community, we live in a land that needs men and women, young people who know Christ, who are totally devoted to Christ, who are set on fire for Christ. Lord, make us in our congregations such people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.